This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Ben Eltham and Emma Shortus. Ben and Emma joined me in the studio to talk about 2019 and reflect upon the year that was in Australian and American politics. And in this first hour of the show, I'm very glad to be speaking with two Uncommon Sense legends. They are called Ben Eltham and also Emma Shortus, who you no doubt would be familiar with if you listen to this show. And I welcome them both now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having us. Good Great morning, Amy. Good morning, Good morning. Emma. So nice to have, you know, the powerhouse political team in the <laughs> studio together, united to talk about some... Highs and lows of 2019. Yeah, probably mostly lows. Mostly lows. <laughs> Proud to be here. We were just talking off air, you know, there's a lot that has happened. And I also saw your tweet last week, Emma, when you were saying, I'm going to have to just refresh my memory as to what on earth happened at the start of 2019, because that actually feels like years ago, given that so much has occurred, so much upheaval, really, and conflict. And every day there's some major change or breaking news. It seems like we're constantly assaulted with this level of like information and drama it seems like we didn't have as much, but maybe um, it's just being amplified by media and social media now. What are your thoughts on that first up? Yeah, look, I think that's a good point. I mean, I did. I had to sort of go back and remind myself what had happened this year and, you know, troll through Wikipedia pages going <laughs> through the Trump administration's record and, you know, realising that we actually started this year with the longest government shut down in the US oh, in history and I had com- that had just completely left my mind because so much had happened since mm. and even that in itself is significant like a government shutdown running for that long is a huge you know it's a huge blow to the economy a huge blow to federal workers and it's just kind of disappeared from the news and of course it may happen again you mm. know, because that's the way the US system works so we may start the year again next year with another shutdown but I, I do think that you know things move so quickly and, and absolutely the media landscape has changed but also I think we're just living in in unprecedented and crazy times. You know, the, mm. the Trump administration is completely chaotic and is lurching from one thing to another and it's impossible to keep up. But I, I also think it is, it's it's different. You know, the Bush administration mm. didn't function like this. I, I think it's, it's quite different and scarily so. Yeah, it kind of seems like he was the PG version and Trump's like the R-rated yeah. <laughs> populist <laughs> right-wing president. We've just jumped... Uh, would you like me to say yeah, something about free. <laughs> the Trump administration? Yeah, go for it, Ben. Well, George Bush did not get himself impeached, did he? So, no. I mean, that's a, one major thing that happened this year. That he is taught, a he major spoke thing, up yep. off the cuff, but even his off the cuff was more just amusing rather than terrifying. Yeah, look, I mean, I think sometimes Bush was terrifying, but I do. My kind of favourite way of describing it, and I wish I could find the original source for this yeah. thought, was that that Trump is, you know, he's he's still a Republican. He still has that, you know, that, that kind of shares that ideology. But the difference between Trump and someone like Bush or, or Reagan or people before him is if Trump says the quiet parts loud. You know, mm. he, he's not afraid to kind of just be be openly racist, whereas previous presidents might have been a bit quiet about it or a bit more subtle. You know, Trump just shouts it from the rooftops. And yeah. that's, I think, part of the difference and also why it's so hard to keep up because he just keeps doing it. You know, he just keeps saying these things. And, yeah, it, it's crazy. And it's, it's becoming more acceptable. He's setting a kind of bar that keeps moving and making things that were previously unthinkable or unspeakable quite 
possible to repeat. And um, certainly even in Australia, there seems to be some inspiration um, and people looking to Donald Trump and, you know, Let's talk, um, Ben, about the Quiet Australians concept that just keeps being rolled out by Scott Morrison, including just recently when he congratulated Boris Johnson on his UK election win and said, like, say hi to the quiet Britons for me. Yeah, I don't think there'll be too many quiet Britons uh, after the Conservative victory in, in the British election. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the Quiet Australians is a, is a phrase that Scott Morrison first used on election night in May, and I think if we were to look back on 2019, it's clearly the most important political event in Australian politics this year was the re-election of the Morrison government. Uh, I think it's a, an incredibly significant event because it, it not only sets the scene for three more years of a Liberal National Coalition government, but it also, I think... Um, signals a new type of populist government in mm. Australia and, and I think a very different type of politics to the sort of conservative politics we're used to seeing in this country. And it seems like it's ideological um, in many regards when we're looking at some of the government's priorities and also the issues it's seeking to avoid, like in America. It's around um, climate change, and which we'll get to in a second, but also um, the Religious Discrimination Bill, which had been going through a number of drafts and had just been released um, for people to look at and certainly has caused a lot of controversy in what it might allow and actually overrule a number of um, areas of appeal that people would often have through human rights bodies um, to seek some kind of solution to uh, alleged discrimination on, on religious grounds or other grounds of sexuality, for example, or disability or race? Yeah, Scott Morrison went to voters in May with very little in the way of a political agenda. He essentially ran almost as an opposition. He ran on not being Labor and he, <laughs> he ran on um, opposing Labor's uh, very, very progressive platform and a lot of Labor's policies. And now we're starting to see the kind of government that Scott Morrison wants to lead and it's an openly conservative government it's a big C conservative government and it's a government that wants to win the culture wars I think it's a really significant kind of aspect of this government uh, there was a very good article by Laura Tingle about a week ago um, in the ABC where she interviewed a, uh, a top bureaucrat that she didn't name um, presumably we think it was a department secretary mm. um, and, and this person said to Laura Tingle this government wants to win the culture wars it's it's just as ideologically committed as the tony abbott government but it's just better at it and i, and I think that's a really good description of the morrison government they want to win the culture wars they want to screw down on union power they want to defeat organized labor uh they want to champion things like uh, religious freedom <laughs> the right <laughs> to be a religious bigot uh they want to absolutely destroy the left when it comes to things like climate change, uh, all sorts of progressive policies. And, and, and obviously climate change is, is the really big issue that the government simply refuses to address or even admit. Yes, and um, that will bring in both of you because we're going to talk about what is really the biggest issue globally that we're all facing is the existential threat of climate change. Um, and many nations and councils and states have declared climate emergencies and we've seen so many protests. And that certainly, I think, is a new development in 2019 is that collective action and protest has become much louder and much more um, 
extreme in the sense of people, you know, like gluing themselves down to roads and, yeah, chaining themselves to fences or trains. Um, We've seen the Extinction Rebellion as well. Um, Emma, when we're looking at climate change and uh, America and their approach, they're really a very influential player on the world stage in a very obvious way. And we did see Donald Trump formally withdraw from that um, Paris Climate Agreement. And also we've just, as I mentioned earlier, had that summit, um, which was to bring all the nations back together after Paris to kind of solidify and hopefully improve upon where um, we reached. Because a lot of climate scientists are saying we we won't actually make our 1.5 degree reduction in emissions. What's your understanding of where American politics is at with the climate? And um, I know that the Democratic left have been probably one of the few corners of America that have been quite loud and proudly green and seeking a kind of major restructuring of the American economy. Yeah, that's right. So so on the Democratic side of politics, I think you know, much like here, what, what has happened is because I guess the right and people in power, conservatives, have, have become kind of so extreme in their denial of what's happening, that's actually actually kind of created a space for people to talk about alternatives, I guess, that are, that are more radical. And so in the US, this idea of a Green New Deal is great is gaining huge traction which is basically it's riffing off the original new deal um, coming out of the depression in the 1930s which basically kind of dragged the united states out of a depression and restructured the economy created jobs um, that kind of thing infrastructure and so the idea behind the green new deal is is to do the same thing but with a with green economy and green jobs. Every single major presidential candidate has endorsed the idea of a Green New Deal, which is pretty massive when you think about, you know, we're talking from Joe Biden all the way to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It's a pretty big spectrum. So that's, Mm. I think, really significant. But of course, none of those people are are in power. And of course, to pass anything like a Green New Deal, you don't only have to win the presidency, you have to win back the Senate. And that is a Mm. huge ask. So I kind of wouldn't be too too optimistic, unfortunately, there. But I also think, you know, this is, again, one of those issues that really ties us together. When I was thinking about, you know, the last year, we ended last year in America in November with the Paradise Fires in California, which was some of the worst fires in American history. 85 people died. And we're ending this year in Australia with, you know, half the country on fire. Mm. And so, again, and, you know, it's affecting us in practical ways. So often we do an exchange of firefighters between places like California and Victoria, which we can't do anymore because the fire seasons are now so extended that they're just kind of overlapping each other in, in across hemispheres. Mm. And so I think that's, that is why you're seeing just exactly what you spoke about, the kind of desperation, I think, of, of protest both here and the United States in the face of, of just of no action, of nothing, of a Prime Minister who's on holidays. Emma, I've been fascinated by the the radicalism of the US Democratic presidential candidates. I mean, we often talk about the Overton window in political science. This is the sort of window of politically possible mm-hmm. policies that voters will accept. The Democrats have moved the Overton window well to the left in the kind of policies that they're embracing, not just the Green New Deal, but if you look at someone like Elizabeth Warren, very radical proposals to rein in the power of uh, big business and capital. They are hugely radical. I think sometimes, you know, for progressives, you kind of look at the US and go, oh, that's that's not that left wing. But but mm. I think especially in the US, con- uh, US context, 
those proposals from Warren and Sanders and some of those young Democrats are really radical. And you're right, the, the window has shifted, I think, dramatically. That's partly, I think, the work coming you know, coming out of the Obama administration and the slow work that they did around things like healthcare and, and showing that, you know, it is possible to make those reforms. And then Sanders in the 2016 electoral cycle, again, kind of forcing Clinton a little bit to the left. And then I think this mobilisation of young voters, which again is, is happening kind of in reaction to Trump and, and essentially what is the rise of fascism in the United States? You know, we're seeing people respond to that and and kind of, I think, also kind of say to themselves, all right, in the face of, of, of this, of what's happening, we have to kind of just do what's right and we have to try. We're not going to try and meet in the middle anymore. So I think we are seeing, potentially at least, seeing quite a dramatic change. I think it will be interesting to see how the how the lessons, I'm using air quotes here, the lessons of the, the result in the UK play out in the US and how kind of, I guess, the right of the Democratic Party try and deploy those those arguments and those lessons. So there's a, there's a while to go yet. Mm, that reminds me of um, a documentary I just finally got around to watching, which was Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9. And I was really surprised to see that a number of um, states and Democratic counties did vote in favour of Bernie Sanders becoming the presidential candidate or nominee on behalf of the Democratic Party, but then the kind of head party apparatus in those states, and there are a number of states, overruled their own voting. Um, that I'm really interested in that idea of like how the right-wing and centrists of the Democratic Party are trying to almost quash any resurgent or insurgent um, left-wing Ideas, yeah, yeah, they they absolutely are, and I think we'll see that again, and that that's partly because of a kind of archaic system that they they actually can they can do that, yeah. you know, that that that's perfectly legal for them to do that. But I think you know the kind of establishment Democrats mm. um, who are who are also deeply ensconced with with Wall Street and capital, look at the proposals of of people like Warren and Sanders, and and they get worried. That's why people like Michael Bloomberg, who's a who's a gajillionaire, has has <laughs> entered the race because he's worried about Warren and Sanders and their billionaire taxes. You know, I think this is, it's becoming increasingly um, unavoidable just how much capital, how much money influences politics and how when it comes down to it, sometimes that's all people care about. You know, the establishment Democrats will talk about progressive politics, mm. but once their money is threatened, you know, they try, kind of change their tune. And I think we saw that in the in the US, sorry, in the UK as well, where, you know, the left kind of tears itself apart because of these, these rifts. And I do think there is a danger of that happening in the US again. Yeah. It's interesting how um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has essentially backed Bernie Sanders and is trying to, I guess, unite with him with her um, Green New Deal, her and her colleagues. Um, what do you think is the likelihood of Bernie ever making it? Because it seems like he had far more uh, momentum in the previous primaries rather than this one at the moment. He Look, he did get very close in 2016. I think mm. we forget that, you know, yeah. it was close and he had the Clintons and the Clinton supporters very worried. I think it's certainly possible that he'll he'll do that again. I wouldn't like. I'm not willing to predict that's <laughs> going to happen. I'm a historian. I'm not. I'm, my business is not the future. Um, I I I don't think. I would be very surprised if mm. Sanders managed to clinch the nomination. I think Warren probably has more of a chance. She has more, I guess, cred as a Democrat, as a long-serving Democrat who worked closely with the Obama administration. Um, she's less threatening, I mm. think, in in that sense. But you know, three months ago, I was saying Cory Booker was the ideal <laughs> centrist yeah. candidate. So what do I know? <laughs> and Kamala Harris has just dropped out. Yeah, and I think her happening. endorsement is being chased. You know, she yeah. might be Attorney General nominee. So yeah, mm. who knows what will happen. 
happen. Interesting. Now, Ben, let's get on to climate change, given that Emma's done an excellent segue in the American arena. So this is particularly important and it's been really building and building and building and no doubt because it's so visible and so um, tumultuous. It's one of our worst seasons yet because it started not in summer and we are only just at the beginning of summer now. And particularly when I'm thinking about um, funding and the federal government's role in um, fighting drought and bushfires that's certainly made worse by drought and climate change. We have seen that uh, the economic cost of the New South Wales bushfires as of a few days ago was $50 million a day. So these are exceptionally costly, but also costly to the environment, to people's health. Um, A number of people can't go outside if they have asthma because of the smoke that's currently in um, Sydney and the rest of New South Wales. But certainly Scott Morrison and his government has been really reticent to actually do anything. Yeah, it turns out that dangerous climate change is really bad for the economy. Uh, Who would have thought? Um, I I, I don't know what to say about climate change in Australia at the end of 2019, really. I, I actually despair, Amy, on a lot of levels. I've never, I can't remember a time in Australian politics where there's been this big a disconnect between uh, our political conversation and the reality of what's happening on the ground, in the air, in the oceans. Uh, it, it, is, it is a time of, I think, very, very deep disconnects um, in our political system. Um, you know, I thought the climate strike was a pivotal moment of 2019 to see uh, hundreds of thousands of children marching in the streets. I think that shows you mm. something that it, there's there's something deeply wrong with Australian politics where young people are, are actually leaving school to march in the streets, really asking for the survival of the planet. Uh, and I think for a government to essentially laugh at them mm. or to ridicule them as this government did, I think it shows you um, just how divorced from let's say, the climate reality, but I think also the political reality that the Morrison government is. And, and as Emma mentioned, Scott Morrison's just gone on holidays to Hawaii, at the, you know, while the bushfires still rage. And will get worse this week, given yeah, the weather. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Bureau of Meteorology is forecasting that this week will be the highest ever national average temperature in Australia. So we'll break the record for the highest temperature across the continent in Australia in human history, mm. recorded history. That's, that, I mean, I don't know. If the alarm bells are ringing as loud as they possibly can. You have to put the earplugs in and earmuffs over them and then still stick your fingers over them to not hear them. And, and that's what this government is is clearly, you know, determined to do. So the question then becomes, what can we do as, as citizens, you know, to try and do something about this problem in our society? And, and I think that's something that, that is really puzzling a lot of people. And I actually think this problem's going to get worse, obviously, before it mm. gets better. But but I actually think we're, we're he- heading into a time of serious political disruption in this country. Um, and if you think about... There's another three years of the Morrison government, right? Like, so they're not, there's not an election until 2022. I think things are going to get pretty crazy by 2022. I think people are going to get desperate. People are already scared. Mm. Um, the question is what will they do once they move through their fear and into some kind of decision about what they want to do about this problem? Yeah, and certainly by 2022, things are getting pretty late to be scrambling 
it was already going to be, if Labor had won the election in May, it was already going to be very difficult to have that transformational change that's required because it actually needs to change our economy as much as it needs to change everything else. The debate now is about adaptation. What are we going to do about the climate change that's already here? You know, what are we going to Mm. do about the fact that our cities are going to become increasingly unlivable? What are we going to do about the fact that the Murray-Darling Basin is drying up and will become essentially uh, unable to support agriculture? What are we going to do about the Great Barrier Reef dying with 70,000 jobs attached to it and $6 billion of GDP? What are we going to do about the fact that um, Sydney Airport might be underwater in 20 years' time? You know, so the, the wrenching economic transformations that are confronting Australia are well beyond just energy policy now. They're mm. about... Uh, no, how it's do, whole sectors. It's the, the, it's our entire society, yeah. and this government is in, in completely unable to address them. It, it's, it's unable even to address the wrenching economic problems that face Australian society. We just had the release of the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook yesterday, which shows that the, the economy is in trouble. Um, we're, we're stagnating, uh, unemployment is rising, GDP is falling, uh, wages are low and not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, So this is an economy in big trouble. The, the government's still sort of sticking to its everything's fine, there'll be a surplus, no worries, you know. So it's just a sort of surplus fetish. Something's got to give, and I, and I wonder if it will be in 2020 that, that, that something does give. Yes, well, it's certainly the case that all of the um, projections from the government in the past, gosh since 2015 at least, um, have all been completely off, which every economist has almost admitted when they come out, is that they've been overly optimistic, um, delusionally so. And really, when we look at um, what has happened with annual wage growth, it's almost flatlining, like nothing's happening. And I heard the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, this morning talking about this and saying, oh, no, it's, you know, obviously it would be great if it was higher, but we're doing everything that will need to be done for them to go up, like increasing productivity, investment in infrastructure, and of course, tax cuts. But as we know, these are all things that uh, the government has been rolling out and using as lines for a number of years and nothing has changed. Well, the tax cuts came through uh, earlier this year and they were a damp squib, really. Mm. People saved them because uh, they don't, they're not earning enough money and so they're trying to uh, put money away for a rainy day. So uh, I think that the economy is actually in deep trouble. It's, it's quite stagnant. Um, it needs a, 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 some kind of serious fiscal stimulus, I think, um, which we're not going to get, obviously, from this government. In fact, this government is taking money out of the economy by committing to the surplus. So yeah. again, once again, you know, the government's putting politics ahead of what would be sound policy. But, you know, given where politics is at in 2019, that that's probably makes sense in, in the sort of cold, hard political reality. I, I just don't see how this government would ever give up its surplus fetish to try and do fiscal stimulus. I just don't think it would. Mm, yeah. And when we look at the Labor side, given what we've, we've spoken about the progressives in America, in Australia, we've seen some um, interesting statements from Joel Fitzgibbon and some of his more conservative colleagues in the Labor Party that almost seem like he might be in the wrong party. Well, the Australian Labor Party is still licking its wounds from the May election. They were, I think, blindsided by the defeat. Most of them thought that they would win, and they're still coming to terms with their defeat. 
Um, so we saw the release of the Labor Party's post-mortem into the election, which blamed Bill Shorten principally, mm. but also a chaotic Labor election strategy. Basically said they didn't have a campaign strategy, uh, more than 100 policies, but no central mm. message that, that, the, that the opposition was able to sell. So I think that was a devastating indictment on Labor's election campaign. And really, Labor's been wandering in the wilderness. It's trying to work out what it stands for, what it's going to, what sort of policies it's going to pursue, where it stands on issues like climate change. So yes, you've seen um, right-wing members of the ALP like Joel Fitzgibbons, who, who uh, of course represents a, a heavily coal mining kind of seat up there in the Hunter Valley. He's making all sorts of statements about how, you know, we need to keep mining coal and coal is great and, you know, don't worry about this climate change stuff. The most important stuff is jobs in the coal industry. Um, at the same time, you know, you've got people like Mark Butler, the environment spokesperson, sorry, the climate spokesperson, um, saying, you know, no, Labor remains committed to deep reductions in carbon emissions and, you know, Labor will stay the course on, on climate policy. I think what it really shows is just how incoherent Labor is, mm. really. Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, has embarked on a a tour, a, a tour of, of uh, mining seats in central Queensland at the very time that these bushfires are raging. So once again, you know, while Scott Morrison's on holidays, uh, Albanese's off talking to mining workers in, in Queensland. You know, I think it shows just how disconnected politics has got at the moment. Yeah, it certainly is. Let's head Back to America for a moment. We saw the NATO meeting, which was interesting for a range of reasons, one of which was that uh, a number of leaders were seen kind of joking about Donald Trump and really um, making light of his long, long press conferences that are rather impromptu and his bombshell announcements that come out of the blue. Given that, that national leaders of different types of countries are quite confident to actually disparage quite outwardly with other world leaders and the royal family, um, <laughs> the president of America. Where is America at in its broader relationship with the world? Yeah, that is a good question. And it has been the focus of, of a lot of discussion in the US. Like Joe Biden mm. released this amazing ad, ad with, yes. where he used that footage of Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, laughing at Trump and how his staffers, you know, he sees their jaws drop to the floor whenever he says anything. And, and the line is kind of everybody is laughing at us. Mm -hmm. And Americans do take that really seriously you know there's a deep self-perception about the role that the United States plays in the world but also that everybody loves us this kind of <laughs> idea that that we we are exceptional and everybody mm. else also sees us ex as exceptional and um, and so I think sometimes from outside it's a bit perplexing because you know you often see this this idea that Trump has trashed America's international reputation and that is true but it's also I think simultaneously true that we all knew what America was before Trump was elected mm. we, we know what America does in the world we know it's about about its military interventionism in the Middle East for example which you know long predates Trump so I think it's a really interesting discussion to watch from outside because Americans are so deeply concerned by their role in the world and Trump is partly you know elected on on reforming that role in the world and then goes ahead and of course trashes the United States reputation in all areas you know not just yeah. in in military interventionism but when it comes to climate change even when it comes to just basic diplomacy you know just basically dealing with world leaders you know you see Trump kind of pushing people out of the way and like trying to out macho them with handshakes and and in these <laughs> kind of ridiculous spectacles um 
But I also think, you know, Trump Trump is playing to his base when he does that. His supporters, the Republican Party, they don't they don't care about any of that. They're quite mm. happy for him to kind of storm across the international stage and and air quotes again, you know, make America great again, whatever whatever that means. Mm. But I think to to Trump supporters that means dominance. It does mean, you know, I guess beating people and and making deals in which America is the sole winner. And if, you know, the kind of as you know, Trump supporters would see the kind of more effeminate, left-wing, progressive Canadian prime minister is laughing at us. What do we care? That means we're yeah. doing the right thing. You know, if he hates us, that's good. <laughs> so uh, it, it's a it's a really interesting discussion. But I do, you know, I have a bit of trouble when people talk about how Trump's cr- trashed American credibility because I'm not sure, to be honest, America had that much credibility beforehand. <clears throat> Well, it's ironic, isn't it? Because in foreign policy terms, Trump has actually been a fairly cautious president. Um, you know, like, uh, in, not in terms of his behaviour, but in terms of his policies, you know, he's managed to stay out of foreign interventions by and large. And Yeah, I think so. And I mean, he, he came, he's, as, as we said, he came to office, you know, promising that, promising getting out of America out of endless wars. He hasn't actually done that, you know, no matter what he says. No, he hasn't managed to get out of Afghanistan, <laughs> no, has he? he? Hasn't. No. But he, I, you know, I think when a lot of us expected him to intervene, like when, it, you know, tensions with Iran escalated really quickly and got quite scary, I certainly was, was erring on the side of Trump is going to do something radical, he's going to get angry, and also the people around him are mm. egging him on to intervention. And he didn't and and that I think is a bit of a shift because Obama Obama spoke openly about how difficult that was about how difficult it is to resist the kind of impetus towards intervention and other presidents have failed to to resist that and Trump so far has but I, I'm going to put a big kind of underline on <laughs> so far TBC yeah exactly. he's certainly been interfering in other ways like with Ukraine and Russia and the 2020 Democratic candidate yeah well arguably i guess that's that's other countries interfering in the united states for once yeah nothing has changed since 2016 in terms of protections being put in place um we're seeing the same kind of patterns emerging in in social media um even in in the democratic primaries and the way that they're being framed i you know i i think i'd probably worry less about that than that what happens domestically on the ground Mm. in terms of, of of how the politics plays out but it it is it is wild times when you know former cold warriors are all of a sudden on the side of, of places of the former Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, I think this is really wild. But it is, it's a nature of, I think, you know, Ben's talked about the d- disrupted politics. And it is, you know, right-wing American politicians see themselves as more closely aligned with, with Vladimir Putin and his ilk than they do with Democrats on the east coast of the United States. Like, that is, mm. that is the way we're shifting. You know, Morrison sees himself as more aligned with Trump than he does, you know, many people here. It's the same thing. Yep, yep. In terms of Australia's credibility and reputation globally, that's another thing which is not in great condition. <laughs> Certainly after this weekend, it's not, is it, Ben? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, 2019 has also been an interesting year because it's been the year where Australia's climate policies have started to really hurt us diplomatically. So we saw a major diplomatic incident with the Pacific Forum, where a series of Pacific leaders, including the Fijian Prime Minister, uh, Frank Bainimarama, criticised, called out Morrison for Australia's uh, inaction on climate change. Of course, the Pacific nations are deeply worried about rising sea levels. 
Uh, and, and now we've seen Australia play an active role in trying to derail the COP25 talks, uh, the, the latest round of climate talks, and, and actually succeed. Australia basically yeah. did derail the talks along with Saudi Arabia and the United States. Quite amazing that you think that Australia's ended up lining up with the Saudi Arabia of, of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, it, it, you know, we've basically become a kind of... Um, you know, a fossil fuel state, really. Mm. You know, I mean, so lining up with the the petro state of, of Saudi Arabia to try and derail more aggressive climate action in those talks. I think that's that shows you where the Morrison government's at, but it also shows, I think, that in the long term, Australia's going to do deep damage to its own uh, international standing with our climate policies. You're already seeing the Europeans say that in terms of any free trade deal with the EU, that they're going to bring climate policy into those negotiations. That and, and, you know, the Australian government's trying to say, no, you can't talk about climate when we talk about trade deals. And the Europeans are saying, well, you know, guess what? We can. Mm-hmm. So this stuff is not going away. And actually, it's going to get more and more serious for Australia. I mean, I, I can imagine a time where Australia starts to face international sanctions because of our climate policies. Yeah. I'm speaking with Ben Eltham and Emma Shortis, and we're talking and wrapping up the 2019 year that was still here you know, more can happen. Hopefully not, though. <laughs> There's only a couple of weeks to go. No, I'm ready. I want to go on holidays. <laughs> same, yeah. same. Bring uh, on Friday. <laughs> now, I just also want to raise the carryover credits uh, issue because it is a really important one and it's the crux of Australia's action or inaction on climate change. And about 30 countries, roughly, were seeking to prevent Australia from using its carryover credits from the Kyoto Protocol, which essentially would mean we would quote-unquote meet our targets without really doing anything, just moving some numbers on a ledger. Yeah, that's right, Amy. So the so-called carryover credits, uh, they're essentially an accounting fudge. They're simply fake emissions reductions. So they're, they're trying to count emissions reductions that Australia claims that we met uh, over and above our Kyoto Protocol commitments. The Kyoto Protocol, of course, was a very Ages. old climate treaty from back from the 90s uh, that, by the way, John Howard refused to ratify. <laughs> Kevin Rudd had to ratify one of the first things he did when he, when he came into office in 2007. Australia had a very, very generous Kyoto target. It was actually an 8% increase. It wasn't even a reduction in itself. Mm. Um, We did actually reduce our emissions below that very generous target. The government's trying to claim that because of those historical emissions reductions that we don't have to do as much emissions reductions in the future. Anyone who thinks about that for about five seconds can see how silly that idea is, Uh, but that's what the government's trying to claim. And this has been the central issue that's helped derail the COP20 talks. Indeed. And um, just to put things in perspective a bit, NASA has provided an analysis of our bushfires um, from since the 1st of August this year and said that the ones in New South Wales have emitted about 195 million tonnes of CO2 and the Queensland fires adding 55 million tonnes over the same period. So even just having bushfires is adding and adding to our emissions. Yeah, that's about half our annual emissions just in these bushfires and that's the terrifying thing about climate change it feeds on itself it's a Mm. feedback loop it's really scary yeah um emma we probably should just acknowledge the massive elephant in the room which is impeachment proceedings (laughs) given that things are going to heat up and we've just seen the articles of impeachment be put forward could you give us an update as to where we are in that long 
proceeding and timeline of impeachment? Yeah, sure. So, so the um, Judiciary Committee has just, uh, I guess, adopted the articles of impeachment. Only, only two. The first is abuse of office. So this is Trump kind of soliciting involvement of Ukraine in the election. And the second is obstruction of Congress. So, so Trump refusing to participate, not allowing his staff to participate, not complying with subpoenas, etc. So there's only two. It will mm. go to a vote of the full House of Representatives, so the lower house, we think next week, maybe Wednesday. So the year is definitely not, not over. over. <laughs> Still got at least a week to go. And and all indications are that will pass with us. It can pass with a simple majority and the Democrats control the House. So that that's probably what will happen. It will then go to a trial in the Senate in January. Mm-hmm. which is presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and, and is supposed to be kind of a, an actual trial, a, a normal trial. But um, Mitch McConnell has already said he's on the side of the president and he's going to do whatever the White House wants. Um, Lindsey Graham, another prominent Republican senator, has said he's not going to be a fair juror. So we've got a fairly clear indication of yeah. what's going to happen. Um, the Senate is basically going to have a, a mock trial, um, a show trial, and, and it'll be it'll be all over. Trump won't be removed from office and that'll be finished. So I, I didn't realise Roberts himself has to turn up and, and be yeah, the judge. Yeah. That's so he, crazy. He presides over it and he's the kind of seen as the swing, swing vote on the Supreme Court. Court, but you know he can't necessarily do anything. He no, can't control no. those, those yeah. Republican senators. Yeah. Um, so, so it will be a farce. Basically, it yeah. will be a total farce and an opportunity for Trump supporters to to kind of, I guess, voice their their own dominate the news cycle with their talk of witch hunts and and the Bidens, etc. So, I, I, it's potentially going to be a bit of a fizzer, I think. You mm. know, and I think that the argument that maybe the Democrats should have held on a bit longer um, and kept the kept control, I think, of the of the news cycle, it, it has some weight because now it's passed over to to the Senate. They are going to acquit Trump, and then you know is he completely unleashed for the rest of 2020 because the Democrats have used their kind of, they've used their big gun, they've used their big Mm -hmm. option. And I mean, I guess theoretically they can use it again. We are in unprecedented territory, but you know, Trump will go around talking about how he's exonerated and he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, yep, exactly. I also heard that they are um, trying to avoid having any witnesses testify at the trial. So it's going to, in their eyes, be done quickly yeah, they want it over as uh, I think as quickly as possible. McConnell, yeah. McConnell has said he wants it over as quickly as possible, and and you know that's because calling witnesses generally doesn't help the Trump administration, no, as we've noticed. <laughs> even even when the witnesses are supposed to be on their side, it yeah. doesn't go that well. So. It was riveting viewing, I've got to say. Yeah, watching the, those. Um, yeah, it, the, in the in the in house, the house, yeah, the, yeah. House, the committee yeah. hearings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. You know, seeing yeah. these these seasoned diplomats just kind of offer up their disgust at what the Trump administration is mm. is doing, I think. And and that I think, you know, it has some cut through because again, Americans do care about how they're perceived in the world and and foreign policy can influence elections. It's rare, but it mm. but it does happen. Um, so you know, we'll see. Anything anything can happen, I think. That was riveting testimony by the former Ukrainian ambassador, wasn't it? Yeah. Or ambassador to Ukraine. It it was extraordinary, I think, hearing them talk about the way that the president conducts foreign policy or any policy at all, you know, (laughs) calling people on the phone and just kind of yelling at them so loud that they have to hold their phone away from their face because, you know, that is not a way to conduct foreign policy and I think it it is... you know, it's worth noting just how shocked those diplomats are at, at how quickly things have changed for them because the State Department is, in, you know, the kind of d- diplomats of the United States are used to kind of bipartisan consensus. They're used to Democrats and Republicans doing kind of the same thing and, and Trump has kind of blown all that up. 
Happy times. Very happy, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your fault, Emma. That's the joyous um, hazards of your job. Yeah, that's right. Isn't it? It's been a long year. (laughs) And Ben, um, just to finish out our chat, if we're looking into 2020, are there any particular issues that you think are going to really dominate? I feel like I already know the answer, but just to ask it anyway. Well, I don't think climate change is going away, obviously. Um, Eventually, Labor will get its act together and start acting like an opposition. uh, And that will be interesting because I think they'll start to apply pressure on the Morrison government. And Scott Morrison himself doesn't take criticism well. He really doesn't like it. Um, And he tends to make he tends to make errors when he's under criticism, under under pressure. So that'll be interesting. I think the really big issue actually politically will be the economy because, as I said, the economy is in trouble um, and the government seems to have no plan to do anything about it. So if the economy continues to stagnate, let alone, you know, starts to go into contraction, then I think uh, quite quickly we'll see a crisis developing within the government. But at the moment, they kind of just tootling along Mm. and I think that they feel like uh, they control the news agenda and that they're able to write out any negative criticism over these bushfires Uh, that's presumably the thinking about why Morrison can go on holiday it is quite staggering isn't it really Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, they're going to continue on with their political agenda, Mm. which is this kind of these kind of right wing talking points like um, the religious freedom bill. Um, They'll have another go at trying to uh, re-regulate the unions. Um, They've Morrison's just announced an ambitious reform of the public service where he's uh, uh, folded a whole bunch of departments together into big super departments and And sacked uh, some heads of departments, sacked some uh, department secretaries um, and got rid of the Department for the Arts. Yep. It doesn't have a name now. It's not even named, is it? No, no. It's just a sort of subunit within the communications uh, sort of super portfolio. Which is now linked in with transport. Transport and regional development, yeah. Uh, I'm shaking my head, which you can't see. No, no, that's not. Yeah, so so I think Morrison's uh, 2020 agenda is uh, more culture war, basically. Mm, Yeah. And um, Emma, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I I mean, I think climate change will continue to dominate the agenda, of course, because, as Ben said, the fires aren't going to – they're not going out. We've got a long fire season ahead of us. Um, I think in if we look to the US, you know, I think, of course, as we just said, impeachment will be a focus for January, but then it might disappear. We'll probably see another government shutdown. And then I think all eyes will probably be on the Democrats for for a long time because they're leading up to a convention in July, so we might – before then, we might know who the nominee is and that mm. will shape politics. I think internationally that, you know, the decisions the Democrats make, whether they decide to go centrist or more progressive, will have influence. I think possibly even here, you know, the Labor Party will be looking closely to see what they do and how they organise and the kind of reception they get. So I think, you know, for 2020, that's kind of where my hope, what little of it is left, <laughs> that's that's where it lies, you know, that we might see a dramatic shift. But I, mm. I think we will also see... A further, and it's hard to imagine, but a further lurch to the right on the part of the Trump administration. I do think he will, as the election gets closer, he'll get more and more unhinged. So, sorry, I've just offered up some hope and then dashed it, <laughs> dashed it again. But, but I do think you know Trump, Trump will get, will can only get scarier. Yay! 
Sorry. That's <laughs> all good. I, I would add that I don't think the Labor Party will be looking at the US Democrats very much. I think yep. they'll just be looking at themselves. The, yeah, well, yeah. They, they do gazing. like doing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As they do best. And also looking at the Greens and, you know, doing oh, a bit yes, of green I bashing. Yes, they do love a bit of green bashing. Yeah. There was a, a recent round of uh, blaming the Greens for everything recently again. Yeah. Um, it's a happy distraction for them, isn't it? It, do, it does make them feel better. So yeah. it sort of plays to the Labor base in that way. <laughs> Ben Eltham and Emma Shortis, it's been wonderful chatting with you both together to talk about 2019 politics in America and Australia and, um, yeah, hopefully things evolve in a more optimistic fashion. Hopefully. Yeah, good <laughs> Thanks, on you, Amy. Amy. Yeah. Always good to be in here Hope, to chat, definitely. mate. Yeah, good to have chat with you. I've been speaking with Ben Eltham and Emma Shortis, two fabulous people who I often have on, to talk about Australian and American politics. 